Welcome back to Tackling the NFL. I'm Josh Rosenberg, and it's just me today because I'm doing something a little bit different. Today, I had a conversation with Professor Nathan Coleman-Lamb. He's a professor of sociology at the University of New Brunswick, and we had a discussion about race, harm, exploitation, capitalism, and how that relates to the NFL. Uh, And I thought that that was a really interesting conversation, had a lot of really valuable insights, and I wanted to share that with all of you. Uh, This is something I've been working on for a class project, but I thought that it was an interesting enough conversation that I wanted to put it out in the world. Uh, So without any further ado, let's go straight to that conversation. Nathan Coleman-Lamb is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at University of New Brunswick. Previously, he worked as a lecturing fellow in the Thompson Writing Program at Duke University for six years after receiving his doctorate in social and political thought from New York University in 2016. In addition to the research cited below, Nathan is the co-host of the End of Sport podcast and a frequent contributor to The Guardian, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Time, Los Angeles Times, Jacobin, and other public venues. Nathan, welcome. Thanks so much. No, I'm delighted to talk to you. This, this is going to be great. Yeah. So this conversation is about the intersections between racial capitalism, the NFL, harm, and just exploitation of labor in general. And so I just wanted to get started with a broader with a broader question. So in what ways do you see the processes of racial capitalism reproduced and or reified by the NFL? And I, I know that your research uh, right now is more focused on college football. So if you want to go in that direction, and I know you worked on hockey in the past, if you see any connections to those sports, uh, whatever you think is valuable would be great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that this is the foundational question that we need to consider when sort of thinking about harm and exploitation in sport, especially football which, as you say, is the sport that I've been focused on. And I think that in a way, what you see in the NFL, right, there's continuity with what happens in college. College becomes the more egregious site because the value is being produced, but the compensation isn't there. But the harm piece um, is very similar, right, in terms of the way it, it carries over. So the, the way I conceptualize this, right, if we're, if we're thinking about like what racial capitalism ultimately is, I think what we need to understand is that capitalism as an economic system based on the extraction of value from human labor, right? And the the failure to compensate that labor according to the value it produces, but instead essentially what amounts to wage theft that goes to a capitalist class who benefits from the work of others, right? That's the logic of capitalism and a kind of Marxist understanding of capitalism in a very shorthand way. Um, What racial capitalism really adds to it, and of course there are different ways of conceptualizing racial capitalism, but racial capitalism as I see it here, Um, is thinking about the fact that racism, right, the construct of race, the social construction of race, facilitates that exploitation in a fundamental way. Not incidental, it's not just like a a byproduct, but actually at the heart of capitalism, if, if, if at its core, capitalism is about destroying bodies in order to suck the value out of them, racialization enables that because it is in, like the fundamental principle of it is dehumanization, right? It's it's this understanding that some people are actually not fundamentally people in the way that others are. That's what race does. And it serves capitalism because of capitalism is about treating bodies as valueless, right? So basically what racism does, right, is it serves as a justification for 
the forms of exploitation that occur within capitalism, the amount of value that is taken from bodies, those become bodies that should be subjected to harm and the harm becomes legitimate as a consequence of that. Okay, so that's what racial capitalism is. Then we wanna think about the US context specifically, right? And the ways in which racial capitalism has historically operated through the institution of slavery, through the Jim Crow era, to again, accumulate value for white Americans at the expense specifically of black Americans, right? Producing a contemporary world. This is getting us to this moment, right? But I think we, ha we have to understand this larger context in order to understand the argument I'm trying to make here. Absolutely. We come to a contemporary moment where we have a black population that, you know, comprises something like 12, 13% of the U.S. population as a whole, which is disproportionately subject subject to a class position in U.S. society, right, which is largely working class and largely does not have access to capital on the one right. hand, right? And we have a white population that largely concentrates capital in the, con in the country. As Stuart Hall says, race of the modality yes. through which classes lived. And I think that this context that you're giving us is super important to understand this. So thank you. Sorry, keep going. Yes, yes. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant and concise quote. So yeah, I think it's perfectly placed here. So then we get an institution like sport, right? And specifically these violent forms of sport that are so popular in the United States. And football becomes this perfect example of that. The purpose of the NFL, of course, and also Power Five, college football, right? The purpose of these sites of spectacle is the production of value. That is why they exist. No matter what other justification we are given, right? The fact that we it's part of American culture, it's tradition, right? Pleasure, blah, 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 blah. But these institutions wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the value that was produced, right? So the purpose is producing value. And we now understand, and I think this is really critical with football, we now understand how much harm is involved in the production of that sausage, right? We know that it is not possible to produce the violent form of tackle football that currently exists without essentially a form of human sacrifice. It's not possible to play the game the way it is played without subjecting bodies to brain injuries and, of course, other forms of injuries, quite frankly, along the way as well. We know that. So then the question becomes, all right, this, this spectacle is valued, it produces value, but it also causes harm to produce. So who's doing that work, right? And this is where we see this incredibly disproportionate amount of black labor doing the work of producing the spectacle that creates this value at this tremendous cost. And I think this is where we have to understand that it's really not a situation where we're talking about people being duped. And this is part of the huge tragedy of racial capitalism in football. Black Americans who play football understand the sacrifice that they are making. They understand it in a way as a sacrifice, but they also understand rationally that it is an avenue of opportunity in the context of a society that denies that opportunity in all of these other ways, precisely because of the principles of racial capitalism. So this, this situation to sign up for football, to get access to higher education that would otherwise be denied through football and potentially the benefit ultimately of an NFL paycheck. And, you know, the, the, the athletes I interviewed, this is a quick sidebar, some of the athletes we interviewed for our book project, they told us, listen, you know, college football was a nightmare. The NFL, in a lot of ways, is a nightmare. But the NFL was also a tremendous relief because the relief came from getting that paycheck at the end of the day. To be doing almost the same forms of work, but to get a paycheck was a tremendous sense of relief for these athletes, right? So there is something that happens there. The NFL is this kind of payoff, even as they understand that they're being viciously exploited and no one has any regard for their health, well-being, or livelihoods, right? But at the end of the day, there is still something additional that comes with the NFL. 
you took us in such an interesting direction and that leads almost exactly into my second question. So I'm just going to ask that to give us like, and the listeners a little bit of a more of a foundation, but this is fantastic. And I really appreciate the direction that you're taking this because I think what we've noticed is that like football and the NFL is part of a larger economic project. We call it racial capitalism that relies on the use of prominent but scarce positions to distract attention from the limiting of opportunities for black and working class youth in order to create a socially reproduced lower class and more of a passive labor force. I think something that we've seen, uh, particularly in like more recent years where certain communities, usually like black and poor communities, have been divested from, defunded from in terms of opportunities, in terms of education. But for every one person that makes it to the NFL, thousands of other aspiring athletes become lower class wage workers with limited access to higher education or social mobility who don't have skills in other areas. Because even if you, you talk about this um, in some of your work on college football, but like one of the tragedies of college sport is that college athletes, especially like power five college football players or basketball players don't actually have full access to college education because they don't get the privilege of choosing whichever career they want to go in or whichever majors they want to take because they have to prioritize the team first and don't get to necessarily take a harder major. Like they will get punished by their coach. It's a form of status coercion, as you call it. So even for the lucky few that do achieve their dream of making it to the NFL, as you said, um, the relief of getting a paycheck, most NFL players are essentially wage workers, given that the average length of an NFL career is around three years. And for rookies who are still on a rookie contract for those three years, the average pay is somewhere around $300,000, which when you consider the like over 10 to 12 years of work they usually went in just to get those like three years of paychecks not to mention the damage that they're doing to their body for the next 50 years and beyond (laughs) that 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 is a lot that is a lot of investment for very little reward for the vast majority of people and even for the people who for the people who don't make it that dream of becoming the one percent of that one percent um maybe the star quarterback or the star wide receiver who is getting a 30 million dollar a year salary really distracts from like I said, those limited opportunities and underfunded schools. And I think worse to legitimize capitalism and also defuse resistance to this economic project. I, I guess that wasn't a question. Um, I, I guess if, if you have any. No, no, it, that, it's a great meditation. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a great meditation on a really important theme. Like, I, I think that the, the point I want to underscore is I think you're exactly right here. Like one way we could characterize the phenomena that you're describing is through this sort of like the theoretical concept of like spectacle. Basically, it's something that uh, the French theorist Guy Debord about how we're living in a society of spectacle, right? And the function of the spectacle per Debord is precisely what you're saying. It's it's ideological, right? It does work in order to distract us from what capitalism is accomplishing, right? In, in many ways, like reality television, our iPods, whatever it is, right? Like, you know, our, our little video games, our phone, all of these things suck up our attention and allow the capitalist system to continue to operate. So really what we're talking about is a kind of ideological function. And then that's, I think it's even more extreme in the context of sport in the way that you're describing, because it's not just that it distracts us from what's happening in capitalism, but actually it reproduces the fictive narrative of the American dream in this sense, right? Because it's actually showing us people who have in a real sense gone from rags to riches, essentially, right? Like they have gone from the ravages of racial capitalism and the conditions that that places them in and the improbable, they've experienced the improbable outcome of having some access to opportunity, to education, to ultimately some amount of capital, right? In the most extreme cases, those who really flourish. And that and that creates for the system 
a kind of cover, right? A fig leaf that makes it seem like the system is actually working for everyone's benefit. So, you know, I, I don't actually even have a lot to add to what you're saying, but, you know, the again, the, the Italian Marxist theorist Antonio Gramsci talks about hegemony, right? And hegemony in that context is this idea of, well, listen, capitalism has violence that undergirds it fundamentally, right? Like at the end of the day, if people were not willing to do the work that is required by capitalism, a violent apparatus would kick into effect, but it's much more effective for the system if people consent in a way semi-willingly to the conditions of capitalism. That might work that far better for the system itself. And, and we have various institutions, kind of a, the Marxian notion of superstructure that exists within our society that help keep the kind of help oil the gears in a sense right and keep it moving without too much friction or tension or pushback and i absolutely agree with you that we can understand this kind of professional sport work uh, or college sport work especially in football and especially in these racialized forms as an absolutely kind of pivotal form of consent production in our in our contemporary world that no i completely agree that is a fantastic analysis and super necessary in this moment. And because you were just talking about violence, I want to go in a slightly different direction mm. where I'm going to read you a tweet to start, um, which is always a questionable <laughs> way for a podcast to go. But um, this is by or tweeted by SportsCenter yesterday. Um, and that's why I've been thinking about this mm. yesterday at like 5 p.m. after the first round of NFL games. Uh, and they tweeted a graphic that said Mike White, who is the Jets backup quarterback, who is now starting Mike White Sunday. He left the game in the second quarter after a hit to the ribs. He came back in two plays later got hit in the ribs again in the third quarter and left the game for the second time to get x-rays, returned at the start of the fourth quarter and finished the game. And once the game went final, White left in an ambulance and was sent to the hospital for testing mm. on potential internal injuries. And that was tweeted with the graphic, respect to Mike White, prayers hand emoji. Oh my God. Right. Yeah, so, I hadn't heard uh, that. My Lord. Yeah. And I, I should I should note for this conversation, Mike White actually is um, a white quarterback, but this has this has been done. This same version, this same narrative has been used for so many times for um, different kinds of athletes. Um, and given that the NFL is mainly black, obviously, in large part uh, for black athletes. So in your book, Game Misconduct, you write about how athletes' bodies are commodified and sacrificed because of the interests of money, consumerism, fandom, spectacle, as you talk about now. Um, which can cause life-changing injuries. And I know that your book was about hockey, but can you speak a little bit about the implications of these processes in a league in which the labor force is majority black, while the fan base, management, and ownership are overwhelmingly white, and how this fits into a broader landscape of differential racial value created by racial capitalism, as you've been talking about? Yeah. So just, you know, I don't, I don't want to belabor this too long, but the the kind of theoretical concept that you're you're referencing there, that that is kind of at the core of that book and, and that analysis of injury, harm and capitalism and so forth is this idea of social reproduction. And it, it can be confusing because we have social reproduction in a kind of Bourdieuian sense, which we were sort of talking about more earlier, which are kind of like the the um, the reproduction of the kinds of ideas and class formations in a society. But the kind of social reproduction theory I'm talking about here is a Marxist feminist idea um, that's trying to get at the way in which um, capitalism itself requires a particular type of work for the entire system to continue. Um, and so just again, really quickly, what Marx is mostly focused on is productive capital. Okay, And productive capital is the production of value in the way that we've been talking about, sort of surplus value. And that comes from you know, basically in, in the most fundamental sense, a worker works and produces value with their work and they don't get compensated fully for it. That extra compens that, that surplus 
goes to the capitalist instead of the worker, right? And that's the, that's why capitalism can systematically produce value. It's not about cheating the consumer. There's a systematic production of value through the labor process, okay? So that's, that's the whole primary focus of Marx's capital. But what Marx also says is the very, the reason why labor power can produce this surplus value is because the kind of the thing that it needs to be compensated and all it needs to be compensated is the cost of the worker's subsistence, the ability of the worker to survive. If the worker can't survive, then the whole system breaks down. There's no workforce anymore. So that's that sort of sets like this minimum bar and capital is always trying to push towards that minimum bar, right? Like labor movements can push it up and push wages up and so forth. But what capital is always trying to do is push it down to that point of subsistence. But the Marxist feminist analysis says, that's all well and good. The wage you receive from the capitalists, from capital, well, that's actually not going to feed you and house you and allow you to sleep, right? Like it might cover the cost of those things, but it doesn't do that. There's actually work that goes into making all of those things happen. And historically, that was largely forms of domestic labor that occurred in the household and were fundamentally gendered in terms of who was doing the work. And the fact that it was actually basically uncompensated uh, beside like the actual work that was uncompensated, even if like, okay, the cost of the food or whatever was, or housing was compensated, but there was work that made those places livable. And what I'm trying to say is work that allows the worker to be actually reproduced, to actually survive, to actually come back to work. And if the worker can't come back to work, capitalism cannot continue. Okay, so that's social reproduction. Now, my analysis in that book about sport is saying, building again on other folks' theoretical work, well, there's the physical needs we have, but then there are also other kinds of needs, right? There are emotional needs. And one of the other things that Marx teaches us about is alienation, right? And the fact that capitalism is also systematically depleting our sense of self, our emotional well-being. Well, that actually gets in the way when it comes to people doing work and producing as much as possible for capital, that emotional depletion. So if there's ways in which we can be subjectively or affectively or emotionally reproduced as well, that also benefits capital. That's also part of producing value for capital. If you can reproduce the worker as an affective subject, their body is reproduced, but their mind, their psychology, their selfhood, the more fully you reproduce the person, the more they have to give to capital at the end of the day. And this is where I'm going to argue, because capitalism is inherently depleting these things, we need things to replenish them. And sport does that work for the fan. So that's where I'm coming back around to sport. The athlete labors. And in this case, I argue that the athlete is the social reproductive worker who is doing a kind of work through the sacrifice of their very self. And this is where the injury comes into me. That for the fan to receive the emotional sustenance that sport gives them, it's not an aesthetic process. It's not an aesthetic experience, although sport could be. That's not what happens in capitalism. What they get is the sense that they're part of a team, part of a collective, part of something profound and real. And that's what reinfuses them with energy. When their team wins or succeeds, they feel part of a larger collective. And that helps them combat the alienation and isolation and atomization of capitalist alienation. But for that to be possible, the worker, sorry, yes, the worker, the athlete who's working, they have to treat sport like life or death stakes. Because if they don't treat it as life or death stakes, right, then like you're not going to go to the park, watch some people play a game and like feel like your your whole self is reproduced and you're part of something really meaningful. You just be like, yeah, yeah, whatever, it's a game, right? So the athlete has to be willing to sacrifice themselves. They have to go back into that game twice and then go to the hospital because when they do that and sports center tells you like perfect, perfect performance, right? 
they're saying that's how much sport matters. Sport, professional sport is worth investing yourself into because it matters that much. It has those life or death stakes. So that's my kind of larger piece about the social reproductive labor of capitalism. But you also ask a very specific question about the extent to which it's racialized. And I, I think here's where we also have to think about the fact that the kinds of social reproductive work uh, that are done around the globe, often in terms of domestic labor, often hired domestic labor, these are often racialized forms of work. And this is because, and this is where um, uh, a soci the sociologist Charisse Burden-Stelly, who is, had done some really terrific work on racial capitalism, right? She has argued in a text for Monthly Review that the way we should understand racial capitalism is that it does two things at the same time. One, it values blackness in that it extracts so much value from blackness, right? But clearly, at the same time, it feels counterintuitive, but it's actually a necessary connection. It is simultaneously, fundamentally devaluing blackness or creating a sense of disposability. So this thing that is so valuable to the system because it produces the thing that the system wants more than anything, value, right? Also has no value because it can be disposed of, because it can be, that's what, what produces the value is that we extract everything from it to the point of utter disposability. Okay? And that is how the black body, the black subjectivity is treated by racial capitalism. And that's why these social reproductive forms of work, which demand more of the worker in a way, they're doing an exploitative kind of, like often that when this work is waged, there's, there's the traditional capitalist exploitation that happens, but there's this additional layer of a sense of selfhood that is also extracted in order to reproduce the self of the other, right? So you, you do something to the self of the worker in order to build the self of the other. And that is always going to be particularly racialized work in a system of racial capitalism. The benefits accrue to whiteness who is reproduced at the cost to blackness or the racialized worker whose self can be more fully sacrificed. And that's what we see happening in college football. That's what we see happening in national football. That's what that's why these systems do not strike the, or these sort of forms of spectacle, spectacle do not strike the society they are embedded in as problematic, as unethical, as harmful, right? They're easily naturalized as appropriate because according to the logic of racial capitalism, this is how it should work. These are bodies that can and should be disposed of in the service of the other bodies which need to and deserve to be reproduced. Right. I think that that is such an important point and something that I think that a lot of people, I mean, most people don't have the analysis of social reproduction theory in the way that you do, but a lot of people I think feel understand subconsciously because if you watch discourses about football, specifically the NFL, but also college football in a lot of times in a really disgusting way because the workers aren't paid in that case, uh, which is what's so upsetting about these kinds of discourses. If you just go on Twitter, which I really don't recommend for these kinds of things, the way people talk about athletes is completely divorced from like the stakes of their job, which it is. It's a profession like any other. The expectations that are placed on them, the um, the self-worth that's tied to this. And that has nothing to do with how much money they're making. I mean, the common argument is, right, they should be able to suck it up because they're making millions of dollars. It has nothing to do with that. It, it has to do with all of these forces that you're talking about. So uh, you have to get out of here. So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to ask one more question because right now we're talking a lot about systemic forces. And I think that that is, really the only way to analyze such a dominant and overarching system that we've been talking about, like racial capitalism. But at the same time, racial capitalism in the NFL can be like directly traced back in most organizations to like one or two people for the most part. And those people are almost always white men. 
for instance, uh, David Moranis and Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post recently found that Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys owner and general manager, and easily one of the most powerful people in the league, uh, participated in anti-integration protests while in high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm not saying that something that he did as a 15-year-old guides his future moving forward. That's not really my point. However, if you look at his record as an NFL owner and general manager, his record on race relations or social progress hasn't gotten any better over time. He was not sympathetic to Colin Kaepernick's protest. He has never hired a black coach in the NFL. His politics remain what they are. And he holds an enormous amount of influence in NFL headquarters, as well as just in the Cowboys organization as one of the longest tenured owners. How can we understand the effects of racial capitalism and exploitation in sport, both as a systemic issue, but at the same time, realize that much of the racist harm is done by individual actors? And how do you think that this affects our solutions for equity, I guess, in the NFL? Because the NFL has primarily focused on providing rewards to encourage the hiring of black coaches for different positions. They provide draft pick compensation to the teams who develop the coaches as well as the teams that hire the coaches if, if a minority coach is hired to a head coach or coordinator position. But this has not worked. This is called the Rooney Rule, and it is extremely clear that no matter how much they try to tweak it, the Rooney Rule doesn't work because the 30, for the most part, white men who have these ownership positions just do what they want. As Holly Anderson says, they did it because they want to. Um, and I think that that is sort of the simplest answer to why so much happens at the NFL nowadays. And it makes it really tricky to move forward. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting to, again, a really core issue here. I, I have like a sort of two ways of approaching this. I think the second is the more important, but I'll, I'll start with the first, which is this idea of individual accountability, responsibility, complicity. Um, and I, I think that sometimes, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that uh, when, when we have a structural analysis, that at the end of the day, people are people do have agency right people still are making choices and also people are living within a society where alternative ideas are available to them right so you can say of course that we have the system of racial capitalism and white supremacy that it produces and and there are ways in which and i'm going to get to this structurally that um creates a kind of current that's almost like impossible to swim against or incredibly difficult to swim against but there are also ways in which, like discursively, we are living in a society where it is very easy to have access to ideas to understand principles of equity and harm and so forth, right? And so at the end of the day, if people are making very conscious choices right now to reproduce the logic of white supremacy and racial capitalism because of their own basic self-interest, yes, they should be held accountable for that, right? It's not like, oh, yeah, that, that had to happen. That was like an inevitability of the sort of social currents. And like if a historian looked back at a moment, they'd be like, well, you know, they're just a product of their time because it was, after all, a white supremacist society. It's like, you know, you and I would say, we've been screaming at these people not to act that way. So like they knew that there was another way they could possibly have acted and they chose not to. And they absolutely should be held accountable for that because like it's egregiously wrong that they're acting in these ways. So, I mean, by all means, individuals should be held accountable for the harm that they cause. But the second point around structure um, is I still feel the problem becomes if we, and this is by the way, I don't know how much you guys are hearing about this in, in Virginia, but like Hockey Canada has had this whole debacle of late because of issues around sexual violence um, that have emerged with the world junior team and so forth. Yes. Um, and the thing is that unfortunately, 
this has become an issue of like, well, the board of Hockey Canada has like kind of obfuscated what has occurred and gotten in the way of any kind of change and refused to step down. And so what you end up is you kind of spectacularize the whole process because the individuals become the locus for the whole discussion. These individuals act in this terrible way. Remove the individuals so we can save Hockey Canada or we can save the NFL. And that becomes tokenistic, right? Because then we lose sight of the fact that actually the problem is hockey culture writ large, for instance, to use that analogy. It's the fact that all of these coaches, all of these who went through a system in which they were trained to act a particular way are now reproducing this logic. So all the kids playing hockey in Canada are learning the same set of values, right? And so you can't get rid of a couple people and change that entire system. Well, that's what racial capitalism is in the United States too, right? And we got to be really clear about some things. We don't have access to public health care in the United States, right? You don't have like, largely access to higher education is really difficult for a huge proportion of the population. We don't have access to, um, you know, the, the fruits of the history of slavery for black Americans. Right? All of these things, these structural things, right? These are the real solutions to a lot of the problems caused by football. The harm caused by CTE, the best solution is... And uh, Medicare for all, right? That's the best solution is giving people access, the people who go through college football and don't any, after that experience going through college football and having their bodies battered, no longer have any kind of insurance, right? And then they have, they're on the hook for those costs themselves personally. At least if there was a public health care system, that would alleviate some of the harm that has been caused to them. If you had access to higher education, Absolutely. right? Like if, even if you had tuition that riled Canadian tuition, like something like five to $10,000 a year for university, but really we should have university access for everyone for free. Would everyone be making the same decision to play football as access to university, right? Maybe not. Maybe they would just get the education they wanted. It would be a richer version of that education because they wouldn't have all of these demands on their labor. And I mean, more crucially, right? If you don't have redistribution, like if you don't, if you don't address capitalism itself, and racial capitalism as the root cause of all of this, as the coercive mechanism that is pushing people into sport, I don't see how there's any solution you can come to at the sporting level that solves any of those problems that are funneling people disproportionately, unjustly, and unfairly into a harm machine. So that's why I come back then to, well, actually, we got to talk about completely different language. This is what people don't want to hear, uh, and that's fine. You don't have to want to hear it. But like, I think you have to abolish tackle football as a sport. I don't see how tackle football as a sport can exist without being a harm machine. And in addition to that, we also have to think about reparations if we're talking about racial capitalism, because what about the people who have invested so much of their lives into this harm machine? If you dismantle that harm machine through a form of abolition, right? What about the people who didn't get the NFL payoff they worked for? As you put it, all those years, 10 years of sacrificing their body, and then they get nothing for it at the end of the day? You're not actually benefiting those people by dismantling the system that was supposed to provide them with the payoff at the end, which is a little bit more harm, right? But finally, compensation to go with it. So if you're dismantling something like football and you're dismantling an NFL in an ethical or just world, you would also be redistributing all those ill-gotten gains to the myriad people who have played football, who have invested their lives into the physical sacrifice of football to give them the tools that they then need in order to live a different kind of life that hopefully is more nourishing and less harmful than the life caused by football. Now, that's a very idealistic way of looking at it, but I think we at least have to have an ethical vanishing point that is serious in terms of thinking about like what is actually just in this context. And then some of the solutions you start hearing about when you compare them 
to that vanishing point, they start looking a lot emptier. Right. We have to have a horizon that we're working towards. We can't just keep pushing along the same like path to nowhere and keep replacing, like you said, replacing the actors and ending up with the same result and wondering, wondering why we get back here. And as a huge fan of tackle football, this hurts me to hear, but at the same time, this is something that I've known for a while. And it's something that, which is why I wanted to do this podcast and why I feel so ethically conflicted about all of this. So I'm going to be meditating on this for quite some time. This was an incredibly valuable conversation to have. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's been a real question. Josh, these, these questions were fabulous questions. I, I love how you're thinking this through. Uh, and it was a delight to talk to you. 